Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. What skills and attributes might a woman have who runs a fish and chip shop in rural Australia? Well, we find out in Live and Let Fry, a detective novel written by Sue Williams. So, Sue, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Now, this is my first acquaintance with this detective series. You've been in before talking to Jan about uh, Murder with the Lot and Dead Men Don't Order Flake. But I'm going to uh, sort of interview, because this is my discovery, so to speak, because I hadn't read the others. Our hero is Cassandra... Ariadne Tuplin, or Cass for short, but she's not exactly your stereotypical private eye, is she? She's not. She's not an entirely licensed private eye. Well, actually, we're talking about this off stage, off stage, but uh, off air, uh, when um, you she had or tried to get qualifications through TAFE. She did, and she's got two thirds of um, a qualification in private inquiry services, and she did get a high distinction in covert surveillance. But, but what happened? The TAFE closed down. Well. Are you actually suggesting something about government policy in uh, rural Australia? Would I ever suggest anything about government policy, David? But this is a nice little uh, vein, shall we say, that runs through these books, this detective series. I do find the Australian government a kind of constant source of inspiration. Well, they do. uh, No matter who they are, which um, week it is. It doesn't matter. They always provide something. But if this is a detective novel, are you insinuating criminal conduct? <laughs> we have to read. We'll what? have to say to the audience, we have to read to find out. We have to read to find <laughs> out. So anyway, not your stereotypical private eye, and she doesn't always get it right. Now, there was one particular incident that I loved where it all went... Um, Uh, haywire he's not an offender well not officially not yet but that's only because you haven't had a chance to question him dean's eyelid flickered devlin's father is the police minister a micro beat pause well you could have mentioned that what has happened with devlin and well this is um and and this is the, the the great enjoyment for me in the books is the what can go wrong when Cass is asked to investigate. Cass is asked all the time to investigate things. There's only 147 people in Rusty Ball. Every single one of them's got a problem. You wouldn't, you can't imagine how many problems these people have. It's amazing, yes. Yes, and they all come to her to solve them instead of Dean, who is her son, who is the cop. Yep. Um, but it, she gets it wrong. This is the, She does. Uh, and continually. So in part of this investigation that's going on in this book, she actually locks Devlin up in a toilet. Because she thinks he, he, he is the suspect. Who's and, about and, to flee. flee the country. And she can't get hold of Dean because he's not answering his phone. Well, he doesn't want to speak to his mother. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and therefore uh, she improvises, uh, locking this suspect, making a citizen's arrest, but the consequences are quite profound. But let's get some of this backstory then because... Um, Cass's whole family seems to be dysfunctional. Dean, her police son, something's not right there. No, he's a very, shall we say, unimaginative sort of a person, <laughs> which maybe is a good thing in a cop, but he, he is very into procedure. 
and he doesn't always kind of see the bigger picture. Um, the other son, Brad, Brad, the youngest, he is a kind of environmental warrior who's having a hard time. He faked a press release um, saying that uh, a super fund were get, were, was getting out of uh, a mine a mining investment, actually divesting of all um, fossil fuel investments, um, which I guess there is often a little bit of an environmental um, topic within these books, David. I did a PhD in marine biology years ago and I do like to worm these sorts of but things such in. such a thing has actually happened in real life. Where Jonathan Moyle, yeah, yes. Misinformation has gone out. Heaven knows we seem to be living in a world of misinformation at the moment. But uh, Dean's life is unravelling. His wife has actually partnered up with... His boss. <laughs> <laughs> which which complicates matters somewhat. Uh, Brad uh, has to look after some ferrets. <laughs> he does. Madison's ferrets. And they've moved in. They're in with Cass. Cass and, is not a fan of ferrets. And, and Madison is uh, Brad's partner. And there's something going on there that... Brad can't tell his mother about. No, no. But the, the, the problem with the ferrets in a fish and chip shop? Not good. Health and safety. Health and safety. Absolutely. So, but what's the importance of a backstory like this, of, of this family um, sort of backdrop to um, a, a novel like this? Well, I was, I was brought up in a country town myself and my family all live in the Mallee, which is where the books are set. And... For me, that's just kind of real life when I write about all of these characters and, and the dynamics between the family and the people in Rusty Boar. For me, that just seems kind of normal. normal. Well, everybody <laughs> has their problems no matter where yes. they are. They just seem to be compounded here a little. Um, now, you've mentioned Rusty Boar. The location is hardly inspiring. Rusty Boar, sheep dip, hustle, um, you do muddy act, soak. Muddy soak. You actually then also, however, bring in uh, Mildura. You've mentioned Oyen. I think Kerrang got a mention in there. And Redcliffs. Um, so this is the first time I've had real towns mentioned in the books. Uh, I think we did get a, maybe a vague mention of Bendigo early on, but never have I actually set any of the crime in a real town. And I think that's because we kind of have a tradition in Australia where crime novels, if they're set in the country, are in made-up places, which might be because authors are fearful of hate mail. But I'm lucky because I have a character, Vern, who's put up his hand to accept any hate mail from anyone in Mildura, Redcliffs, Oyen, anywhere. He will deal with it on my behalf. <laughs> <laughs> but it almost makes these sort of odd towns real because there are real towns to counterpoint them. And, and we do have some odd-sounding rural towns out there. Well, we do. And I do say to people that Rusty Boar is somewhere between Teddy Waddy West and Manangatang. <laughs> you just have to look. Um, I mean, yeah. But um, this is where we get to the crime now, the murder, conspiracy, the, this sort of little isolated backwater comes alive. We have the one-armed Vern who's seeking Cass's help regarding dead rats dumped on the doorstep of his paramour, Joanne Smith. But then Joanne disappears, the, vo the body of Vivian Bentley turns up, and we have a far more sinister problem on our hands. What's the nature of the problem we've got? Well, how, how much, much do we want to reveal? Well, how much do you want to reveal? Uh, because <laughs> we, we want the... Um, we want the reader to go out and find for themselves in some ways. As I've already mentioned, there are things that go wrong. There are also clues that are 
misleading in some ways. We don't want to give those away because that's part of the exploration process. But you've got a major development taking place with uh, Nick Peluso and Jim Tovey. What can you tell us about them and their involvement in the crimes that are occurring? Well, particularly Nick Peluso has got a bit of a history. He's um, being investigated by ASIC and Cass, in fact, has to impersonate an ASIC officer at one stage, which I think she she does that quite well. She does that reasonably yeah. well. And she does have a little bag of tricks that she has in her car now. And little, and little cards that she yes. can give. Um, oh, well, they're outsourcing the financial yes. services now. <laughs> so yes. she gets away with it. But Nick's a sort of stereotypical mafia-like character. Big. We, well, we, we see him in this novel for the first time in... in it's not Speedos, is it? But It, it is Speedos. Oh, dear yep. me. Bulging belly <laughs> by the pool. A very big man in Speedos. Big man. There's a blonde um, nearby. Palm trees. <laughs> Got to have palm trees. So you're actually uh, providing us with stereotypical images, but they're not always necessarily uh, leading us in the right direction. There was also earlier on a hitman a, a bikey with a spider. In a bookshop. In a bookshop. In a second-hand bookshop. And one reviewer did take me to task over that at readings. They did feel that was a bit much to have a hitman in a bookshop, for God's sake. But was he actually a hitman? Well, you've got we a, don't want to spoil anything there. But so, but you've got these images of people which lead us to expect one thing and then something else occurs, etc. Just like the clues lead somewhere else and I think that's I think that's important to keep well for me as I'm writing I enjoy it when there's a surprise because it keeps me interested and I hope that keeps the reader interested mm. as well but there's a bit of corporate malfeasance uh, taking place shall we say <laughs> yes and I have a corporate background myself not that I am involved in any malfeasance but it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting to explore that in fiction but it makes it come alive. It brings the the uh, wider world into rural Australia because we're talking about a marina and a casino up on the Murray, which is perfectly uh, feasible. Um, and it's also um, lends uh, lends a possibility of bringing in some environmental issues as well because yes. the water in the river usually the last people the and last thing to get the water is the environment well it's it's very topical too at the moment because they're talking about uh, water rights and and access uh, to water at the moment on the murray darling basin so well readers can find out for you for themselves who is the culprit uh, who's there's a crime sue um Oh, I've forgotten the name of the... Cass. No, not Cass. Who's missing? Joanne. Um, Joanne is missing. Um, so that's one thing that has to be solved. And um, we also have a murder that has to be solved as well. And so it gets more complicated as we go. And Cass is also attacked. So there's plenty to investigate. So the reader can look at those things for themselves. But your whole style then is something else I want to touch on. Um I glance back at the road. Shit. A shape ahead. Human height. Not a human. A kangaroo. Smack in the middle of the road. I hit the brakes. Tyres squealing on the bitumen. The car lurched into a skid. A blur of road. Forest road. We hit the gravel. Headed straight for a giant gum. I clung onto the steering wheel and swung hard trying to avoid the tree. A million other trees. I stood hard on the brake. Harder. We shuddered to a stop. The car's nose an inch from a tree trunk. The kangaroo bounded languidly off across the road. 
Where did you get this, uh, well, what's your inspiration for style? And Oh, for style, my God. I don't know. It's I mean, just... the energy and the impact of that and the immediacy of it. It's one of my greatest nightmares is to hit a kangaroo on the road at night. Having any kind of car crash is one of my greatest nightmares. All I need to do is t- tap into every fear I have, David, and um, put it on the page. But there's <laughs> the energy in the writing then, uh, the succinctness. You've also got lovely... A lovely conversation with Ernie, who's in an old folks' home. Um, so, Ernie, you know this Rex Patterson, the bloke who died in Mildura? He turned to look at me, using the bookcase to steady himself. I knew it. I knew you were after something. They're all after bloody something. He glared at the switched-off TV as if he was making unreasonable demands on him as well. Listen, Ernie, your local knowledge could be vital in helping solve a missing person investigation. That cold-blooded killer, Joanne Smith? Vern's adamant she isn't. He says something's try- someone's trying to set her up. Without concerning himself with a couple of minor details, such as who, how or why, Ernie shuffled back to his chair, took a sip of tea and stared into space a moment. Now there's a bloke deserved to die. Look, I know Vern can be annoying, but keep up, for God's sake, I'm talking about Rex bloody Patterson. Plenty of people wanted him dead, good bloody riddance. The jumping of... Uh, um, Ernie's off on his own planet. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope if we have an audio book that you're invited to um, do oh, put, you know, at least some of it, David. <laughs> put, put my name forward. Yes. <laughs> but you can hear these characters, the inspiration for these characters. Um, well, it probably doesn't sound very healthy, but it all started, Cass was a voice in my head. <laughs> Out bushwalking one day, a flock of white cockatoos mm. flew overhead and I thought they looked like bits of white chip paper against the sky. And but, that was her born. Because and all of them are like She's that. got her own voice because this is all told in the first person and her whole humour, attitude, uh, aspect of, of things that are taking place. We're going to quickly get to the end because I'm going to have to bring this to a close. But you've got the rural setting, but all of a sudden the, the, the book ends with an appeal to Wagner's Die Valkyrie. So you go from one end of culture, uh, sort of low-key fish and chip shop, to high culture on the banks of the Murray and the, and the ride of the Valkyries. But, of course, we have opera in so many country towns now. Yes. Um, Perry Sandhills, not that far from Mildura, they've had opera there. Um, so, other yeah. towns, uh, I think you mentioned one earlier, in uh, Geelong has had opera. Yes, Geelong, uh, up in the mountains, in the, in the vineyards. It's going on everywhere, mm. sort of thing. But that lovely contrast, and what a resolution, you know. Can I say that there's something burning? Am I allowed to say? Well, there's a Murray houseboat. I don't think that's giving anything away. Uh, but uh, behind the, the platform of Die Valkyrie taking place. So you've, you've almost, yes, the clash of culture taking place here is just marvellous. <laughs> very humorous, very funny. I've been talking to Sue Williams about Live and Let Fry, which is the third in the Rusty Boar series, and it's from Text Australia. And now I have a pre-record to play, so here we go. Does losing our memory mean losing our identity and even our sense of reality? This concept is toyed with in Glenda Guest's new novel, a week in the life of Cassandra Abilene. So, Glenda, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Now, your novel is bookended with two challenges, if I can jump into the deep end. We have Alzheimer's at the beginning and a stroke at the end. Not to the same character, mind mm-hmm. you, but this highlights the sort of central conceit where people are potentially in danger 
of losing themselves. Exactly that. <laughs> it's about identity. It's about memory. It's about that onion thing. And I think Cassandra, who is the main character along here, she actually says somewhere along the line in a, in a conversation that she, she imagines memory as an onion. And with the disease, those onion layers are peeled off until you get down to the basic core of who you are. And I've always seen that with people who I've known with Alzheimer's. I've always felt that as the layers of masks that we all wear, as they disappear and are not there, the, that same, the person is still the same person. And you get to see the real person as those layers come off. Someone very close to me had a minor stroke a few years ago. And when I saw him not long after it, it seemed to be like a different person. And I think that whatever happens in the brain, if it takes memory, you have nothing left. If you have no memories, you don't have anything of you. And this is what, in many ways, Cassandra explores because she's been given a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. So she wants to return home to Perth on the Indian Pacific. And as she does, she basically rewinds her past and the reasons for coming to Sydney in the first place. Yeah. She came on the Indian Pacific from Perth to Sydney and the reason she came is the reason she's going back because she wants to make sure that the reason she actually left home was a reality. (laughs) That gets to be complicated. But then we question the very reality. Is the reality simply shaped by our experience understanding at the time? Exactly. When I was starting this, a lot of things came together at once, but I eventually found the what if. And the what if was, what if you were going into, you were diagnosed with dementia or with Alzheimer's or any sort of dementia condition, and you knew you'd done something down the track and you were trying to remember if it was real. You knew you'd done something, but had that something caused the actual leaving? Or did you want to leave? Did you think you were going to? So that was what, that's what Cassie's doing. She wants to clear up something that she did. She knows she did it. She wants to work out what she did around it. But does it really matter? The other interesting thing is then the names. Cassandra? Anybody who's read any any mythology knows who Cassandra is. It let, opens the box and lets out problems. Uh, well, so, yeah. which is what she why, why she's Cassandra? Is she going to open that box and say things to people that she didn't say at the time when this event happened? Is she going to keep it closed and let life go on as it has done for something like forty five years? Does she need for her own self to do that? That's part of the journey. I mean, she's going. It's a physical journey. It's a physical retrace, as she did herself, as she came. She went Perth to Sydney on the on the Indian Pacific, just as it opened, actually. And this was a lot of the the actual writing hassles, getting timetables to work for what I wanted. The Indian Pacific, as a full train, started from Perth in 1970. Perth to Sydney. So she, I had to fit in with that. I didn't want anything swapping. I just wanted her on that train staying there. It had to fit in with the Vietnam War. It had to fit in with ages of both of the twins that went away to war, which are her friends and one was a lover. It had to fit in with what was happening in Sydney because King's Cross at the time in 1970 was a really interesting place. There was a lot of R&R folks from Vietnam. 
And all those things had to dovetail and it was, a, it was almost a jigsaw nightmare. And just getting the return journey particularly was difficult because I had everything in place and then I found out that the timetable changed in 2015 and it changed quite dramatically. <laughs> so I had to sort of see, work out how I did it. I left the actual timing so just before the new timetable came in. Cassandra escapes, shall we say, to Sydney, the furthest she can go away from Perth, after the events have happened. We don't know what the events are. We've got to go with her on her journey to find that out. But in Sydney, she basically is, shall we say, adopted? She is. And she's actually, if you look at it, she's adopted most of her life in some ways. The, her own family... They love her dearly, I'd imagine, but she's happier in someone else's house, um, which is the next-door neighbours. She's a farming community. It's in the, the next-door farm. In From King's Cross, she's almost adopted by an Italian family and, of course, the family that adopted, adopted in brackets, who originally were Greek. And I didn't realise until I actually sat and read it through that this was happening. She gravitated to the family people, the family communities, as against the fairly strict, very Englishy type family that she, she was born into. She's also adopted and gets her first job from a tattoo artist. Absolutely. And Bammy's lovely. I was really... An interesting I character. Him. I absolutely love him. But I'm then, trying to you had to leave. In terms of adopted, it's a good word, because there is some suggestion about Cassandra's parentage. Oh, it's only very slight. In, in the sense that who are we in terms of family? Because there are times when we identify with somebody else's family more than our own. Absolutely. And that's what she does. She thinks there's a question about it briefly because she doesn't like her own family. But this her is... mother treats her bad, not badly, but she's you know, Helen, her sister's the favourite. So Cassie always feels she's on the outer. But it's something a lot of children go through. Yes, you know, do. I don't belong to this family yeah. sort of thing. Basically, let's say around Adelaide, uh, we get to the sort of intervening years mm -hmm. where uh, Cassie has actually gone away to university and relationships and the like and exploring the intrigue there. When I first started thinking about a new book, Somebody said to me that the now I'd explored Australia after World War Two, why not tackle the Vietnam War? And I looked at it and I tried and I couldn't. And I think it's because my brother was a return vet. It was too close. I couldn't deal with it. I didn't know anything about it, quite honestly. Whereas when my, the migration wave after the Second World War came into Australia... For me, it was very obvious because I was in a small country town school. The school changed dramatically. It had to be rebuilt because of all these migrant kids coming in. Vietnam was, a, was an unknown territory and I actually didn't want to go there. But the thought stayed with me. And around about the same time, I was reading about twins because I'm, I'm really interested in twinity or twinness. My parents had fostered a pair of twins when I was quite young, when I was about four or five. And they didn't stay with us various reasons but they were highly dependent on each other it was a boy and girl very very different their dependence on each other really really stayed with me and this is another weird little fact I'd, i had two cats though from the same litter <laughs> and one one got run over 
and the one the outgoing one got run over. The other one was a very quiet little thing, used to be very gentle, hidden in the corners. When the first one was killed, his sister changed dramatically and seemed to take on the personality of the one that had been killed. That stuck with me. And it's actually referenced in the conversation between um, Cassie and Jack on the train. He actually brings it up. Very, it's very subtle, but it's there. Yeah, the, well, there are the references to the cats. And, of course, you do have the twins That's from right. the neighbouring farm. Yep. And these boys become the love interest of mm-hmm. Helen and Cassandra. Now, I don't know how much you want to delve into that. As I started this, I didn't know what I, what it was. I didn't know what the story was. I didn't know what it was about. A friend of mine is an artist and she had a has a studio. And she said, come and use the studio. Now, you can't sit there with a working artist saying, oh, what have you done today? And say, well, nothing. So the manuscript came out and we started again. And I realised after a very short time into that what it was about. It was actually about identity. And I had a big note stuck in front of me on on the board saying, it's about identity, stupid. That actually drove it from that time on. We've hinted then at what happens with the twins, shall we say. But these boys and their names are Co and Dion. But... Are they one and the same? They have swapped places at one stage in the novel and they've gone off to the Vietnam War. But in many ways, Coe's the more responsible one, Dion's the tearaway. Mm-hmm. And what responsibility do they have for each other in terms of looking after each other physically as well as emotionally in some ways? Well, their, mo- their mother's Greek. Their mother is Mary. She used to be Mariam Kukoulis before she, the actress in in London, before she turned into the farmer's wife. She named the farm Amorthithea, which means beautiful view. But she said she was being ironic. Uh, ironic, and nobody understood irony except the Greeks. So she calls herself the ironic Greek. That she's always told them that they're responsible to look after each other. They're twins. They they take care of each other always. However, Co is the more responsible one. He's the quieter one. Co means twins in the old Irish language. Dion is from Dionysius, the, the tearaway god. So you've got the, the quiet Apollonian figure and you've got the rambunctious one. But, they, but nobody knew ever because they were so identical. Nobody ever knew if they'd actually were each other or they were swapping. And in some ways you then have used acting as a way of sort of suggesting some of this because they can do the mirror exercise and virtually become the other. That's right. And so you've actually used acting as a sort of image or metaphor of people creating reality. We finally get to Perth. I don't know how much we can give away because the questions are confronted Mm -hmm. about identity and I want the audience, the listener, to go away and read that for themselves But rather than what's the answer, it's a question of does it actually matter if we create our own reality? We do create ourselves. We have to create ourselves because nobody else does. And what responsibility do we have for somebody else's reality if we can change our own? Because that gets into another issue that is in the novel, which is that of abortion. Why it's there is because at that particular time, in that particular state... It was a crime. It was a crime for the the young woman. It was a crime for everybody, for whoever helped him, and it was a crime for the doctor. I had an abortion when I was eighteen, and that's very very real. And it was a 
very, very traumatic experience. And for Cassandra, she made that decision, wasn't it? It wasn't something she, she made lightly. You're talking about what, what's real and what's not between, say, a writer and, and uh, actor. But that's one of the things. That, now, the things you take with you. For me, I step into a scene, I see what's around it, and that, then I write it. And I think that, again, that comes from my own theatre training because I see it, I literally see it visually before I write it. Sort of, and then it just it takes its own life. Well, it seems that you've used a lot of your own personal experience in this novel. Mm, not really. Not really? Kittens? Mm. And oh, kittens, yeah. Well, I mean, you do. <laughs> and but, twins. But big things. And the major things. But the book is A Week in the Life of Cassandra Abilene. The author is Glenda Guest, and it's a text publishing release. So, Glenda, thank you very much for your time today. And thank you very much.